Well, we'll be in Ephesians 1, if everyone would turn to it. I guess, I guess you'd stand for the reading of God's Word anyway, so that's kind of a <laughs> built-in stretch. <laughs> but nevertheless, uh, Ephesians 1, we're going to read once again the profound sentence in Ephesians 1, and then next week, God willing, we'll move on to verse 15. Once again, verses 3 through 14 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he has set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Welcome to have a seat. And let's join together in a word of prayer. Uh, Lord, we thank you for uh, the, the wonder of being in you, that all, all this is not just from you, but it has to do with being united in you and being in you. And we thank you, Lord, that you have called us to be in you. We pray for understanding and that you'd anoint the scripture and send it forth into our hearts to help us be the people who you want us to be and get a greater picture of who you are and to uh, deep, more deeply experience your love. In Jesus' name, amen. By way of review, this glorious sentence, this powerful running sentence that is like a doxology can be broken down into three parts. What the Father has done, the present blessings of being in Christ, the Son, and the work of the Holy Spirit and what God will do. Last couple weeks, we looked at what the Father has done. So this time, we move into the blessings of being in Christ and what the Holy Spirit will do. Paul is blessing God in this writing. We see, we see this refrain at the end of each section in verses 7, 12, and 14 that makes us praise God. It, it makes an attitude of praise well up inside of us for what God has done. 
and the glory keeps on going back to Him. So let that be in your mind and in your heart as we go through this to glorify God for what He's done, to have an attitude of thanksgiving and an attitude of worshiping God and praising Him for what He's done, what He's doing, and what He will do. God has blessed us in Christ with all spiritual blessings. He has chose us to be blameless and holy, and it's all for His glory. This morning we're going to look at two points and some points that flow out of those two points. And the two points are simply this. Praise God for present blessings in Christ and praise God for giving us His Spirit. Praise God for present blessings in Christ and praise God for giving us His Spirit. Praise God for ble present blessings in Christ. Present blessings, indeed. Blessings we have now in Christ and praise God for giving us His Spirit. We'll look at each of these as we pick up in verse 7, which is a transition because verses 1 through 6, or 3 through 6 rather, describe what the Father has done, and now we're getting into the present tense. Verse 7, In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He has lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Redemption and forgiveness. John 8.34 says this, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. We know this to be true. Ever try to stop sinning apart from Christ, especially before knowing Christ? Anybody who practices sin is a slave to sin. Sinning is not freedom. It is slavery indeed. But praise be to God, He's bought us back from that slave market of sin. He's bought us back. Redemption is buying back. And He's done it with the price of the blood of Christ. Verse 7 again, In Him we have redemption through His blood. Through His blood. Apart from the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. But Christ's blood was the, was the perfect, was the final blood shed. And it was, it was the satisfactory payment that, that bought us back from the life of sin. All the blood spilt of livestock throughout the centuries was a foreshadow of the ultimate blood that would be spilt on our behalf. We celebrate that with communion, as we'll do in a few weeks. God has bought us back. He has paid the price with the precious blood of Christ. Redemption and forgiveness. As we move on through the text, picking up in verse 9, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. It all goes back to the Lord. It's all about the Lord. Uniting all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. We were just talking today about sometimes when we gather in unity, sometimes people bring along some funky ideas. There's coming a time, ultimately, where all things will be united 
in heaven and on earth under the authority of Jesus. And what a glorious time that will be. Revealing, God's revealed the mystery of his will. What's God's will for my life? People often wonder. What's God's will about this? What should I do about the fork in the road? And we wonder these things and they're real questions. But here's an overarching truth that should govern our, our pursuit of God's will. Making known to us the mystery of his will. A mystery is something, again, that was previously not so much revealed in Scripture, but at a certain time has been revealed more fully. The mystery of his will, according to his wisdom and insight. Whoops, that's the same verse. Mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. That's where we'll see in its ultimate sense, in its ultimate physical sense upon the return of Christ, when, when we physically are in the world of Jesus ruling and reigning. He still rules and reigns even now, but there will be a time when we see that in a very clear way, every knee bowed, and every knee bowed before the Lord in his physical sense of his rule. Let that govern our pursuit of God's will. All things coming in authority under Christ. What does this have to do with taking your kid to the pizza place? Well, I don't have much experience taking kids to pizza places, but Pastor John Corson does. John Corson is a pastor uh, out in Oregon, I reckon. And he wrote, or this is a commentary of, of some of his teachings that I read uh, for personal devotional times that I, I enjoy a lot and grow a lot from. And as I was reading this, preparing for this message, I think he put this in a very good practical sense. Listen to what he has to say regarding verse 10 here. What is the big picture? What is the mystery? It is that in due time, everything in heaven and earth will be gathered together in Christ, around Christ, and for Christ. When my son Benjamin was seven years old, we went to Pappy's for a pepperoni pizza. This is the kind of pizza the Ninja Turtles eat, Ben declared. They like it so much, they even steal it. They do, I said. Well, that reminds me of a story. And I proceeded to tell Ben the sad story of how Achan stole from Jericho in Joshua 7. When I finished, Benny understood what, that stealing leads to problems and pain. And suddenly, sitting down over a pizza at Pappy's had meaning, substance, and depth in a way it wouldn't have had the moment not been brought together in Christ as we talked th about things of the Lord. You found this to be true, whether it's talking to your kids or planting flowers in your garden, listening to a coworker, or practicing with a teammate. Whenever you're focused on Christ and bring the moment under the authority of Christ, you're, in, you're right in the middle of the flow of what God says life is all about. I thought that's a really good perspective. 
We don't. We, we await the glorious return of Christ and, and things being brought under His authority in the clear way that we long for. But we don't only wait for it. We, that waiting also compels us to take the moment, seize the moment, not for the sake of seizing the moment, but for the sake of Christ and bring it under the authority of Christ. And we captivate every thought, bring it into the obedience to the will of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we captivate the moments and we use the moments to point them toward the authority of Christ and bring them under Christ as we let the, the reality of Christ take over everything in life, to, to flow into every category of our, our lives, and He's going to work through us to bring that into the world around us. P.S. That's a teaching that you, we really see in the book of Colossians, a great book to read alongside Ephesians. Going forward, God's will, God's, God's glorious will, filling all things. We move down in the text to verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who are the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Take a look at these words in verse 11. According to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. What a profound line there. Works all things according to the counsel of his will. The direction of God's will. Does that mean that every single thing that ever happens is God's will? In the moral sense, certainly not. We only have to think of our own lives in the last 24 hours probably to realize that, let alone looking into the world and its history and all the sin that has happened. But what it does teach us is, again, God is on plan A, and he's always been on plan A. We're on plan Q, G, some letters that don't even exist yet, that we had to borrow from other alphabets of the past. The English alphabet, like 26, isn't even, we don't even have... 26 isn't enough plans for some, some areas of our lives. But God is always on plan A. Nothing thwarts the plan of God. And that's very comforting to, to rest in the sovereignty of God. When your plans fall through, how frustrating it can be if you set out and you think, these are the things I'm going to do today. Ever been there? You have these things you want to do? And your plans just don't come to pass. These unexpected events. And sometimes, sometimes it's the monumental things that really throw you for a loop. Sometimes it's the little things. Sometimes it's just the stupid little things like showing up at a certain place and you realize they closed five minutes ago. And these little things can throw us off. But they don't have to. They don't have to. Because when we go back in our minds to the fact that we worship a God who works all things according to the counsel of His will, we can say, okay, that was my plan. I thought it was a good idea. It's not going to work out, but His plan's still working. His plan's still going forward. And it doesn't really matter if we can get a grip on this truth. It doesn't really matter if our plans don't work as long as we're on the same side of the one whose plan is working. I once heard a fellow said, I, I did not hear a fellow said, I, I heard a fellow say, uh, if, if he's okay, then I'm okay. 
so simple and so true. <laughs> it's a good thing to remember uh, if, if things in life really get jarred or if they only get jarred a little bit. We're not always planning for those. Sometimes those little ones are curveballs. We think we don't really need to turn to God when our plans are a little messed up. And then we turn to self-pity sometimes or frustration or irritability or whatever it might be. I've been there, but we don't need to go there. The, the Lord works everything according to the counsel of his will. And now we get on to another transition where the text transitions into the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. In ver picking up in verse 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The promised Holy Spirit. We've talked about this before, but it's, it's always worth bringing up again. What a wonderful time we live in, in this post-Pentecost New Testament time. The promised Holy Spirit. It's easy to take for granted that the Holy Spirit lives in us. But in the Old Testament times, the, the Holy Spirit, was he, was he still the same Spirit? Yes. Did He still exist? Yes. But His ministry regarding the believers was different in that the Holy Spirit would sometimes come upon someone for a certain task and, and work through them for that task. The Holy Spirit would sometimes come upon certain people such as kings and, and priests and, and then some other individuals. But the Holy Spirit was not a given for anybody who believed. The Holy Spirit was not a given for anybody who believed. That's what, that's what makes the time of Pentecost in Acts 2 such a special time in church history because from that point on, onward when the Holy Spirit came the Holy Spirit now comes f uh, uh, into the believer upon belief. In Him, you also, so you Ephesians, you Gloucester folks, you Christians, whoever you are, in Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, was the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the ESVM reading from here. Some I, I, kind, I almost read from the NIV. I think it's a little bit easier to understand. But if you practice a sermon in one translation, I learned from one past event, it's not very good to preach it from a different translation because you start saying words that aren't there in your own text and you become confused. <laughs> I did that once. Won't do that again. But the idea is we're sealed with the Holy Spirit until we acquire possession of the inheritance. Eventually, we're, we're going to have resurrected bodies. Eventually, we're going to be in the resurrection. We're going to be in heaven. We're going to be in the new heaven and the new earth. And we have not only an inheritance in Christ now, we also have something to look forward to in the future. Now, as the Holy Spirit, depending on what translations you have, you have in him you also when you were sealed with the word when you heard the word of truth the gospel of your salvation and believed in him you were sealed the holy spirit who is the guarantee in verse 14 you might have a different word you might have earnest if you have the king james 
you might have deposit, you might have down payment, or maybe something else. So the idea is the Lord has sealed us with the Holy Spirit. We're not, our bodies are not glorified yet. We're not in heaven yet. This is not our home. We're still strangers, aliens, sojourners on this earth, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. And as the book of Romans teaches us, we all creation, whether it's believers or the rest of creation, groans as we long for redemption. But we have the Holy Spirit in us, a down payment guaranteeing our inheritance. Here are some scripture, here's a scripture to go along with that. Do you ever feel like you're spinning your tires, your spiritual tires, that is? Do you ever feel like you're stuck? This is, I'm not trying to make a pun about the upcoming storm that will perhaps come in a couple hours, but if that helps you, so be it. Ever feel like you're spinning your tires or stuck? It's a certain sin or something that, that's an attribute of godliness that you know it's God's will for you to put on and you're just having trouble putting it on and you try to put it on and it's just like, when will I ever get past this hump? We all are there sometimes in various ways. Here's an encouraging scripture. Philippians 1.6 And I am sure of this, writes Paul, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So he's bringing it to completion along the way. The Holy Spirit's working in you, and that's the part of, of becoming more like Christ, and that does take our surrender on our parts as the Holy Spirit is willing and he does his part to make us more like Christ. But God will bring us bring the good work He started in us when we became believers, when He sealed us with the Holy Spirit. Paul is confident of this, that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. There will be a day of completion. Well, there will be a day when we receive the rest of the inheritance. There will be a day of the resurrection and the glorified bodies. This is also... As we look at this text, this is another one of those, could be another one of those controversial doctrines amongst Christians. So I'm just trying to mind my own business, lead a quiet life, and as I go through the book of Ephesians, we come to these controversial things. And if you like them, don't worry, there are at least two more to go before we get through the book that I'm thinking of right now. Maybe more. But here, here's this one. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. There is a doctrine that, another doctrine Christians disagree on, and when I say Christians, I, I really mean Christians. I don't mean Christians and false teachers. I don't mean Christians and cultists, but Christians. And that is eternal security. Eternal security. It's also called the perseverance of the saints, if you like those fancy words. And it's basically the idea of once saved, always saved. It's the idea if, if, if somebody's in Christ, if someone's born again, if somebody's saved, then it's impossible for them to lose their salvation. That's, that's the doctrine. And this is one of those times where it's okay to agree to disagree because there are Christians, not saying both are true, only one's true for sure, but there are Christians who love the Lord, who are doctrinally sound, and who are filled with the Spirit on both sides of the fence. 
and this has been a, a disagreement amongst Christians for centuries, so I don't really expect to solve it in the next 10 minutes or so. That would be um, rather audacious of me to think that I could do that. So this is one of those things, where, again, where I say, be like the Bereans. Be, be convinced of what you believe, but don't be divisive about it. Because this is, this is not the resurrection. It's not the virgin birth. It's not the Trinity. It's not, you, you can, there are scriptures that I see people on e either side going, going with, and I can see how, although one side, although people are not correct on both sides, I can see how people would make sense of it one way or the other without grossly or intentionally distorting scripture. You can see where people go. So, with this, uh, on some of, these, some of these topics, like the end times, I'm not exactly sure where I stand. This is one where I stand. I stand on the side of the perseverance of the saints. I, I do believe in eternal security. If this was a sermon just on eternal security, it would be right to have a whole bunch of scriptures backing it up and scriptures on the other side so you can see both sides. And if you're interested in some of those, I can help you find some on both sides if you wanted to study it further. But in our interest today, I'll, I'll only allude to that and say, be like the Bereans. But I will say a few things um, about it without tearing on it too long because I want to give some applications so people walk, so everybody walks away with real applications and not just the fact that Christians disagree on this. So, when we look at who is the guarant who, this has nothing to do with disagreement, but I wanted to mention the pronoun who. This is a good pronoun. Who. Holy Spirit is a person, right? A Holy Spirit is a person, not an it. That's a side note, but it's a good side note. It's a good... Um, reality of the Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory? So when I see this, I, I believe that this is a statement on eternal security because it doesn't say who is the suggestion of our inheritance unless you fall away or unless you leave the Lord. It says who is the guarantee of our inheritance, which looks like a very definitive statement. Again, if we were to really do a study on this, you can't take one scripture and look at it. But this is, as we go through, I want to point this out and say, be like the Bereans. If people are interested in studying that more, we can, I'll be happy to talk about it with folks or direct you to some scriptures to look up on both sides. Eternal security, a few, a few thoughts about it. One is, it, it begs the question, what about this person? I'll use the word Felix, for example. Because I'm guessing you probably don't know many people named Felix, and neither do I. <laughs> but then again, there might be some Gloucester person named Felix, who you all know for like the last 30 years or something. <laughs> so there's Felix. Felix is, Felix is following the, seems to be following the Lord. He's in church, he's in youth group, uh, gets baptized, goes on a mission trip, he does all these things, and then one day he's just off the Christian radar, drops out of church, and the next time you see him, he's coming out of the Wicca shop in Salem, and you never hear of him again. What happened to Felix? Short answer, I don't know. <laughs> Slightly longer answer <laughs> is this. Well, this is where people will say, uh, upon observing Felix, some would say, well, Felix lost his salvation. 
And, and what, I, what I believe about this, and this, again, Christians disagree, but what I believe about this is that in Scripture, we don't really have any definitive examples of people who lost their salvation. There are some people who seem to be following the Lord or who, or who are religiously involved to some extent, and then at the end they're not. But I don't think there's any clear teaching that that person absolutely had a born-again saving faith and then lost the born-again saving faith. We see a little bit more from the outside, which is what we see through people when we observe them. And it still makes me wonder sometimes when I see people like Felix. I have this friend and, and he, we, one of my friends told him about Jesus, told him about the gospel, he, he prayed the prayer, he started going to a small group Lydia and I were leading. He, he wanted to grow into things from the Lord. He seems so on fire for the things of the Lord. And then he kind of goes off the radar. He stops coming to the group. A while later, I see him, see him in downtown. And I talk to him and, well, you know, I'm kind of into Buddhism now, actually. It's, it's really, I'm not really into the whole right and wrong thing. I really like just finding balance. What happened? I, I don't know what happened to him. I don't know what happened to him, but I don't believe that he lost salvation. I think there are some people who really look like a Christian, and then they lose the faith, um, or, or lose the religiosity, or, or whatever it is. I'll give you a quick example of how that can play out in one's life, and we could look at scriptural examples and see some of this too. But up until the point when I came to Christ, I was, I got saved on a mission trip. And it wasn't a mission trip where people were coming to me. It was a mission trip where I was going to people. And so I was, I was a church member. I was involved in the Christian Fellowship Club at my college campus. My fresh, it was my freshman year in college. Baptized, confirmed in the Protestant church, which is maybe even more bonus points on the outside than the Catholic church. And um, went, had gone to youth group. I was on a mission trip, an evangelistic mission trip of sharing the gospel with others. I wasn't saved. I wasn't saved. I didn't even know I wasn't saved. I thought I was, but I didn't really know what saved men. And then on that mission trip when we were being trained to share the gospel, uh, it's that simple. That's what it is. And then, I got, and, and then I turned to Christ and I was born again. But the reality is if I hadn't been born again on that mission trip, I would have come back. Anybody would have thought I was saved. And what if I had wandered from the faith? They would, have, they would probably say, like, wow, Greg lost his salvation. No, Greg never had his salvation. And there are many people who, who will really, I mean, an evangelistic mission trip, it doesn't get much more, um, how could you possibly miss it than that? Uh, but there are, there are pastors out there who are pastoring Christian churches who are unsaved and they don't even know it. It's important to pray for all of the Christians. It is indeed, yes. So I, I believe in, in regard to this, looking at the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance, not the suggestion, but the guarantee of our inheritance, I believe when someone walks away, one of two things happened. One, the person never knew Christ to begin with. Uh, Jesus said, many will come to me saying, Lord, Lord, did we not, did we not cast demons out in your name and perform miracles in your name? Like, I've never performed miracles that I, that I know of. But, I mean, that would look pretty good. Casting out demons, exorcisms, and miracles. That, like, that's, that's, that's pretty impressive. But Jesus says, I never knew you. 
not I did know you until you crossed the line of, of uh, whatever. Uh, I never knew you. Depart from me, worker of iniquity. So we, we, I think there are people who, come, who really look like Christians, even to the point of doing miracles and exorcisms. And, um, and, if, and surely if they're doing that, then the whole church membership and, and outward religiosity falls under that um, umbrella of, of more normal things. Uh, so sometimes they can really look like a believer, but, but aren't necessarily. And then there are other times when someone strays very, very far, and you would think that they, you're never going to see them again, and then they're back. I have a friend uh, who... At one point when she was suffering in great physical anguish, she had, this was a friend I had in college who had, had certain illnesses and she was suffering, she was in the hospital, she was suffering from great physical anguish. And out of her uh, spiritual darkness and, and great pain she was in, she shouted out to God that she hated him and that she didn't believe in him, which I know is kind of an oxymoron. But nevertheless, uh, you know, I'd think, okay, where is she, where, well, I don't know where she is now because I haven't talked to her in years. But after that, where was she again? Back serving the Lord. Back following Christ. And I don't think that meant she lost her salvation at that moment and then regained it. But rather that, like, like Peter in the scripture, where Jesus said, you will deny me thrice. He did. He did indeed. But there's... But did, so did Peter lose his salvation, then regain? I, I don't think that that's what happened. I think Peter was overwhelmed with emotional fear and that ultimately he ended up following the Lord. So, different perspectives. That's where I stand on this. Now for some applications that I think you can carry regardless of what you believe of this. Just because somebody believes in Jesus doesn't mean they've accepted him. That is true. Yeah, some people believe in the historical Satan Jesus. Believed in Jesus. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, you believe in God. Good. Even the demons believe that and shudder, says James. Indeed. So many times, uh, one, one, it's good to avoid the extremes of this doctrine. I would say the extreme, um, weird, unbiblical view of believing it and the extreme, weird, unbiblical view of disbelieving it. Let me start with the extreme unbiblical view of believing it that's not on the path of God's will. And that is, once saved, always saved. Therefore, it doesn't matter how I live. An irreverent life. Some people might use this doctrine as an excuse to just, well, I, my sins are covered under the cross, so it doesn't really matter what I do. I can, I, it's a free-for-all. And that I don't think the real problem is with the doctrine. I think the real problem is with the person's heart and with the sin. I think with that, um, if people want to go out and live a lifestyle of sin and, and immorality and such, um, they might use that doctrine as an excuse, but I suggest they'd probably be, be doing the same thing even if they believed in losing salvation. Maybe there would be some buffeting, but ultimately, uh, it, is, it would be a really gross way of picking one idea of Scripture and ignoring the vast majority of the rest of it. Once saved, always saved, an excuse to sin? Nay. As Paul said, should we sin more 
that grace abounds more, far be it. Far be it. It should never be an excuse to sin. And on that note, what, what happens if you, if you encounter a, a believer who believes that and says, well, well God forgives me anyway. He'll just forgive me. So it's, it doesn't matter what I do. And if someone's really living uh, a horrendously sinful life, there's probably evidence, and I say I definitely use the word probably here, there's probably evidence that they don't know the Lord to begin with. If so, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit. So if, someone, if someone's out living a horrendously sinful life and they're like, yeah, I accepted Christ when I was five. Uh, I prayed the prayer then so I can do what I want. See you in heaven, sucker. <laughs> Chances are that would be a good person to pull aside and say, uh, maybe you won't actually. <laughs> Jesus said you'll know them by your fruit and all of your fruit is spoiled. I would seriously be questioning that. I would seriously be questioning that. And, and, and I think you might need to come to the cross for the first time for real. We must be care and, and now on the other side. We must be careful uh, on the other side of, of disbelieving this doctrine or having a very light view of the doctrine. We must be careful not to think that we finished the work on the cross. Jesus said it is finished. And to have a heavy view of salvation is a free gift that we freely accept, but then it's us, up to us to keep it, sometimes can be a very dangerous thing. Because we have this enemy, the accuser of the brethren, and he does like to accuse. And if we really believe that we have to hold on to our salvation and keep it, if, that's, if our idea is that we have to, we were saved, but then from that point on, we need to do everything we need to keep it, the enemy is going to really nip the heels of those poor folks. And he does. He does. What about that sin? Did you repent for that? Did you, did you repent of all your sins today? You were awfully busy. I bet you forgot one or two or three, and I bet they were important ones too. God didn't forget. He's going to get you on judgment day. And this is what the enemy does. He's the accuser of the brethren. And I, I actually met a, a, a brother in Christ who testified that until he came to an understanding of God's grace and the, the, the whole cleansing of all his sins, past, present, and future, and then the eternal security of the Lord, he actually got to the point of, of being suicidal because he, which again is an oxymoron. You would think you'd want to live as long as possible, or maybe not. But he got to the point where he's literally suicidal because he, he was so anxious. The enemy was doing such a work on him, trying to be perfect, trying to, he had already accepted Christ, but he was trying to keep it. And every moment was like, oh, did I, did I do well enough today? Did I do, oh, could have I lost my salvation today? And, and tomorrow's a new day. Oh gosh, what will I do tomorrow? Will I walk the narrow road well enough? And could I lose my salvation tomorrow and the next day? What if I lost it 10 days ago and I don't remember? Would I even know? Am I so callous that I wouldn't even know? And, and it, it could drive people insane. And it nearly did him. Thankfully, he discovered God's grace more. So it can lead to a, a legalistic spirit that the enemy can attack us with. We must be careful of a works-based salvation that we try to couple with this. Another thing, don't be paranoid about losing your salvation. 
Again, the enemy, the enemy is an accuser of the brethren. Day and night he accuses the brethren. Don't be paranoid about the loss of salvation. Um, some people, when, when we look at 1 John 1.9, if we confess our sins to God, he's faithful and just to, con to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When he cleanses us from all unrighteousness, he really does cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not just of the past, not just of the present, but of the future too. And I find that good to say again and again, because it's hard for us to fathom that. The future, how can you cleanse us from something that we haven't done? But again, God's outside the, the whole space-time continuum. He can do that, and he did if we're in Christ. Cleanse of all future sins, and that's, that's such an important thing for us to cling to. Remember, all, all our sins were, were in the earthly sense, future tense, when Jesus went to the cross. So when he took on the sins of mankind, all of our sins, unless we lived before the cross, um, were future tense. The accuser of the brethren will want to accuse us, will want to make us doubt the grace of God, will make us uh, want to think that we can somehow uh, fill in with our, with our flesh um, something that's lacking in grace. When we confess our sins, when we're, when we're in Christ, once we've asked for forgiveness, once we've been regenerated, once we've been born again, once we've been sealed with the Holy Spirit, when we're in Christ, do we still confess our sins? Do we still turn from our sins? Absolutely. That's, that's the life of being a Christian. That's, that's the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin. And that's, if, if we have that conviction, that's a good thing. But we, can, we confess our sins and we turn from them, not because every sin, not because we have to confess every sin in order to keep our salvation. If that were true, I don't think any of us would make it unless we died very quickly after becoming Christians. In fact, that would be the number one goal. Because, quite frankly, do I remember every sin I did within the last year? No. And, there, and, and as we grow in Christ, think back to when you first knew Jesus. Were there sins, especially subtle ones like of attitude, or sins of omission, things that you should have been doing that you weren't doing, that back then you didn't even know they were sins? If you could have traveled back in time and said, hey, you should do that, you, you, your, your past current self would say to your future time-traveling self, oh, come on, lighten up, that's not that bad. But now you know it is, because you're that much more sanctified. So we confess our sins to maintain a closer relationship with God, to be useful to the Lord, to walk closely with the Lord, and because sins are still, still destructive, absolutely. But we confess them, we turn to them, but it's not a matter of what if there was some sin that I didn't confess? What if I lose my salvation over that? The only safe way to live would just be to say, God, please forgive me, God, please forgive me, God, please forgive me, God, please forgive me, and pray you don't get laryngitis. And because what happens if you're walking the street and you say, God, please forgive me, and then there's a bus coming, and you say, oh, beep, and then the bus hits you before the next God forgive It's all over. It's all over. Well, God says, what sin? <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. Yeah. Indeed. So far as the east is from the west, our, our transgressions removed. Indeed. So don't be paranoid of losing salvation. Finally, if you're ever wondering, if you're ever wondering, or if you encounter 
a brother or sister in the Lord who's ever wondering, like, what, what if? What if I, I, I'm not in Christ? What if, what if I never was saved or, or something like that? You can always just ask God to forgive you. Just be honest with God. He knows what you're thinking. It's not like it's something where you're going to somehow have an effect of like a button that you pressed and it hopefully did what you wanted to do and you don't, I'm not sure if you should press it again because that might reverse it. It's not going to reverse it somehow. It's, it's not going to be a reversal. Just be honest with God. And, and it's not, he knows what you're thinking anyway. And I've done that with, with uh, at least one person before who said, well, I, I thought I, I thought I, accepted Christ, but I don't know if I really meant it. And it's like, okay, well, you know, I, I don't know if you really meant it years ago either, and I don't know everything about your life, but the Lord does, and we can just go to the Lord, and, and, and you can just pray and ask Him to forgive you, and, and, and He knows where your heart is, and tell Him you want to be born again, and if you're already born again and you're just doubting, well, now you know. It's not going to be, it's not going to be a reversal effect. So you can encourage people that way. Uh, rather than trying to sort it out in their mind and pick apart every nuance of their past. And finally, this is the real finally. In closing, feeling weary ever? Feeling weary? Feeling worn down on this journey through life on earth? If the answer is never, then all of us must be careful not to covet your life. But for the rest of us, ever feeling weary, worn down, let, this, let the Holy Spirit encourage you. As a plan, whoops, wrong scripture, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Holy Spirit's the, the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. We have the Holy Spirit in us to witness to us that we belong to the Lord and as the Holy Spirit draws us to the Lord in worship, as the Holy Spirit brings Scripture to our mind, as the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin, and everything that the Holy Spirit does inside of us as individuals, as you go through life, if you're fearing weary, let the Holy Spirit remind you, this isn't your home. This isn't all there is. But there's something better coming. He's the, he's the down payment. You have the down payment. Just like you're saving up for something that's very special, like a home or a anything. You put the down the down payment, you know it's it's there. You just gotta bring forth the rest, and now we just have to go through this life as as we await the Lord's return and the redemption of our bodies. We have the down payment, the Holy Spirit. This isn't all there is. There's something greater coming. Let the Holy Spirit uh, encourage your heart with that. And on that note, let's close in a word of prayer. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the wonderful blessings in Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit in us, for the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of trespasses. And we thank you, Lord, that you've given us a down payment, guaranteeing our future inheritance. We thank you, Lord, for the wonderful finished work you've done on the cross. And we thank you, Lord, we thank you that we have a day when we look forward to the redemption of our bodies. We look forward to the new heaven and the new earth. And the Holy, your spirit inside of us, you living inside of us, encourages us and helps us to remember 
that there's something glorious coming. And we pray that that, that very uh, thought, that very remembrance would encourage us all the more to live lives that please you here on earth. We ask, Lord, that you bless our tithes and offerings. Uh, we pray for Evangelist Denver Thompson, uh, for, for this, uh, that you'll help him and his family financially, you provide for them, bring them to the right home. We pray uh, for our leaders and our government today. We pray for our time of fellowship, that you'll bless it, that it may be rich as it always is, encouraging one another. In Jesus' name, amen.